Turn with me once again to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, read with me as I read verses 12 to 15. Having just exhorted his readers to apply all diligence in their faith by being morally excellent, by gaining a proper knowledge of God, learning self-control, persevering in the faith, attending to godliness, exercising brotherly kindness and love, all of which are critical components in our making certain His calling and election of us. Peter then says, Therefore, or in consideration of all these exhortations, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. As I was preparing for my message this morning, I was reminded of another hymn that we often sing entitled, I Love to Hear the Story. In particular, I thought of the, I think it's the fourth stanza in our Trinity hymnal. It is the third stanza in some other hymnals. But I thought of this stanza in which we sing, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. Peter so loved and treasured not only the gospel itself, but the many practical teachings of Christ, the teachings regarding how we as his children are to live our lives in a way that consistently honors and glorifies Him. He so loved it all that He was never afraid of repeating Himself. In fact, Peter considered such repetition to be necessary as a means of sanctifying God's people. A few years ago, I was having a conversation with someone who was visiting our church and he had visited off and on for a few months, and he came to me one afternoon, and he was consider, considering joining us as a member, and he needed to know, before making such an important decision, he needed to know one thing. He said, I have a question. I said, okay, what is it? And he said, well, do you always preach book by book, verse upon verse? Or do you ever preach on current events and real-world issues? When I asked why he was asking, he said, well, you know, I'm fine with the Bible and all, but it's just way too repetitive for my liking. At that point, I explained to him that while the Bible is, in fact, chock-full of repetition, that it's good. For us to be reminded over and over and over again what God expects of us as His children. 
I also explained to him that the entirety of the Word of God, properly understood, properly taught, in fact, does speak to real-world issues. I suspect that the problem many have with the preaching of the Word of God, as it's supposed to be preached, is that very often it doesn't give them the answer they're looking for. It doesn't give them what they want to hear. Folks, I've never said that the Bible tells us what we want to hear, but I can assure you that it tells us what we need to hear. God's Word is inviolable. God's Word is immutable. God's Word is just as practical today as it was the moment it was put down on paper. And God's Holy Spirit lives in us to remind us constantly, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And it's difficult sometimes to hear the truth of the Word of God. It's difficult when the Word of God doesn't align up with our own ideas of how life should be and who we should be. I get that. But again, it's absolutely necessary as the most critical component to your spiritual growth and mind. Of course, as I could have predicted, this young man was not pleased with my answer. He's never returned. I've never heard of him since or from him. But again, we need this reminder over and over of the central truths contained in God's Word. Why? Well, one reason among many, but one of the primary reasons we need this is because we're also prone to forget. We're also prone to hear the Word of God, and read the Word of God, and maybe even internalize it for a season, but then before long, you know, life happens, and we forget what we've read, we forget what we've heard, and so we need to be reminded of those things over and over again. And we need to understand that if we are prone to forget, which we all are, in our forgetfulness we are in grave danger not only of returning to past sins, but even of leaving God out of our lives altogether. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, I certainly may grow lax from time to time. I might be a little deficient in some of the disciplines that Peter speaks about here, but I could never forget God and everything that He's done for me. And yet, that's exactly where laxity can and often does lead if we're not careful. Now, let's just talk real talk here. We all live in a really fast-paced world. Life can be difficult. Life is full of distractions that can easily take our focus off of the Lord. Many of you lead incredibly demanding lives and are constantly busy simply trying to make ends meet. When you do read your Bible, it's only if you manage to find the time when opportunities do present themselves to pray. It's only when you can fit prayer into everything else that's going on in your crazy life, when opportunities for fellowship and accountability do present themselves you're very often unable to take advantage of those opportunities because of everything else going on in your life. And I get it. But here's the thing, the busier you get, the more difficult it is to tend to the most important things that need tending to. 
You need to know this. Without the daily intake of God's Word, without reminding yourself and being reminded from the Word of all of these important disciplines, all of these things that are repeatedly found throughout the Word of God to commit ourselves to study, to commit ourselves to prayer, and fellowship, and worship. If we continue down that path for an inordinate amount of time, we are running the risk of forgetting Him. In fact, this is precisely what the Israelites were warned about. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Read with me as I read verses 11 through 20. Let me just preface this by saying this is a group of people who had been led in the wilderness. They had been supplied by God with all of their material needs. They had been cared for. They had seen demonstrations of God's providence at every turn. And yet they need to be told, as we read beginning at verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. How? How might that happen? By not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness He fed you manna which your fathers did not know that He might humble you, and that He might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this well. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He might confirm His covenant, which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. It shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. I spoke in the first hour this morning about how ungrateful we can be for the many blessings that God bestows upon us and how prone we are at times to dwell on the past. And I would even carry that a step further and say a lot of times we dwell too much on the present. Some of you might be thinking, well, it's well and good that all of these people had all of these houses and herds and flocks and silver and gold. And all of these things were being multiplied. And, and yeah, I can see where that would pose a danger of forgetting God. But here's the thing. Poverty can do the same thing. You might be thinking, well, you know, I'm as poor as a church mouse. 
And I still have problems with all these disciplines that Peter says are good for me and my growth in Christ. Here's the thing. It might very well be that the troubles in your life, including your being on the lower rung of the poverty ladder, might be because you're not listening. Right? It doesn't take riches to forget God. You can be so self-absorbed and so, you know, so self-centered that all you can think about are your own horrible conditions. And in the process, you're also forgetting God. Because at that point, it's all about you. Could it be that God has you exactly where you are with all of your troubles, with all of your doubts, with all of your frailties, with all of those things? Because he's saying, look up here. Look at me. Stop looking at yourself. Again, as I said this morning, be careful that those things don't turn into a toxic form of narcissism. I think we have an epidemic in this country among evangelicals who are more intent to look at themselves than they are to look at God. Get your eyes off yourself. Turn them up. And, oh, by the way, outward. What did Paul say to the Philippians? Consider others as more important than yourself. The minute you begin doing that, things will change. And it all starts with a steady diet of reading the Word, meditating on the Word, thinking on the Word, thinking about the commandments and the precepts and the statutes that God has so graciously given you. And when you've thought about them today, think about them again tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. I mean, this is why we have that timely exhortation in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. You know this very well. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. What's the implication there? The implication is clear. Unless and until you're doing these things, availing yourself of the Word of God routinely, remembering what He has told you repeatedly, and then doing that Word, you're never going to get anywhere. It really is a simple, if not tragic, equation. A pivotal part of the Christian life involves learning what God says and then reminding ourselves of it at every opportunity for the rest of our lives. This is precisely why Peter tells his readers here that he would always be ready to remind them of the exhortations he's given them even though they already knew them and had become firmly established in the truth. Very similar to what John, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.21. 1 John 2.21, having just reminded his readers of the importance of not loving the world or the things of the world, as well as warning them yet again of the dangers associated with listening to many of the antichrists who 
had already appeared on the scene to lead them astray. John writes this. And understand this well. He says, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lies of the truth. What does that mean? I'm writing this to you because you do know the truth, but you've allowed the truth to become commonplace. I'll say it again, familiarity often breeds contempt. And so the things that we know the best, we've become most complacent in. And yet that's not to be the case where the Word of God is concerned. We're to know it, we're to live it, and we're to practice it every moment of every day, lest we forget it. Jude does the same thing in verse 5 of his tiny letter. He writes this to those who either had forgotten or were in, the dan or in danger of forgetting. He says, now I desire to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I don't know that I can be much clearer on this. But the bottom line here is that we're constantly reminded throughout Scripture not only of the need to remember what it says, but also of the need to constantly be reminded of what it says. In other words, we don't just remember once and then go on our way. We are to be reminding ourselves all the time. We're doing a survey of Old Testament history, the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in the first hour each Lord's Day. And I can't tell you the number of times people have come to me and they've said, look, I've read the book of Genesis more times than I can count. I have read it over and over and over and over. And I'm in that camp too. I thought this is going to be a piece of cake. Everybody knows the book of Genesis. Everybody knows what's there. I'm just going to be reminding people every week of what's there. Folks, if you've been attending those studies on Sunday mornings at 9.45, then you've benefited from those in the same way I have. Because we're learning things that, to be honest with you, even after 30 years in pastoral ministry, I never knew. It's a good thing. And I told you this morning, if you keep reading it yourself, you're going to find things that we don't even cover. That's how rich the Word of God is. That's how worthy it is of being repeated over and over. I had somebody come to me not long ago. Well, Pastor, I finished reading the Bible. What do I do now? Start over. <laughs> huh? Yeah. Start over where? Genesis 1, verse 1. And then what do I do? When I, when I read it again, then what do I start over? Well, how many times do I have to do that? Till the Lord says you're done with living. That's what Peter says. Peter says, I'm going to do this till the day I die. Why? Because it's good. It's good for me. It's right. All of these things are true even for those who are already established in the truth. Let me, let me just ask you now, I mean, 
would you consider yourself established in the truth? Some of you might be thinking, well, I think I am, but pretty sure you're going to tell me I'm not, which is correct. In fact, I'm glad you asked the question. The word translated as established means to make firm, means to make stable, and not just temporarily stable. It means to make something as hard as granite. It means to make something so stable that it cannot, by any force, be removed or disturbed. Now think about that in terms of what Peter means when he talks about those being established in the truth. Are we ever really established? No. But in sanctification, we are always being established. This word is also translated as to strengthen, to fortify. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul writes, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be honored just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And what means does the Lord commonly use to strengthen us? His Word. His Word. In 1 John 2.14, the Apostle encourages his readers saying, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The source of their strength was the abiding word of God. In Ephesians 6, where Paul explains the purpose of our wearing the armor of God, he prefaces his comments by saying in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How? How are we to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might? Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And what's included in this armor? Well, there are six pieces of armor that we are required to put on and to keep on. Five of them are purely defensive. The sixth one, is both defensive and offensive. We're told, put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes that represent the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And again, we're left with that one critical piece of our loadout, as it were, that is both defensive and offensive. And what's that? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
There's nothing that will prepare us and strengthen us more effectively for the battle that we're all engaged in than being firmly established in the Word of God. Those of us who are older, especially older in our walks with Christ, can certainly testify to the effect that the Word of God has had on us. Can you not? I mean, if you've been saved over five years, can you not see where you were then as opposed to where you are now in your knowledge of the Word of God, your understanding of the Word of God? Some of you might be saying, well, not really. Because I have to admit that the first message this morning kind of hit me hard and that's where I'm at. Well, that's okay. As long as you realize that now, from this day forward, having heard the truth, it's now incumbent upon you to obey. It's now pressing on you to learn the Word of God repeatedly so that you might grow in all of these critical areas. But most of us can readily attest that the more we read, the more we study, the more we hear of the Word of God, the more we share the Word of God, the more we live it out in our lives over and over again, the stronger and more firmly established we will become. Look at Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Jesus tells us this very thing in really picturesque language. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 24. Note carefully what Jesus says here. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them, that is, those who take full advantage of or make the most profitable use of his word, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So many places in this world where people routinely go to church, on Sunday morning. And don't get me wrong, again, there are a lot of good churches, even in this city, lots of good churches. But you have to admit that there are a lot of churches where the truth is not taught. Where instead of building your house on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ and His Word, people are being encouraged, challenged to build their houses on the sand. To build their houses on temporal things to place their hope on temporal realities instead of eternal things. There's nothing more egregious in the sight of God than to see those professing to believe, professing to be adherents of His Word, who instead of studying and doing His Word, are more content to reap the benefit from what they think is genuine belief when it's really not. Any and all genuine belief will be founded on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And it will be learned 
from his word. In verses 13 through 15 of our text, Peter gives us another explanation, not only of what he was attempting to do among his readers, but why he was doing it, how long he would be doing it, and how he was doing it. First of all, he answers the question of why. Why do you keep repeating yourself? He says, I consider it right. That doesn't require a lot of explanation, does it? Peter was intent on reminding his readers of the same truths over and over, again, simply because it was the right thing to do. And why did he consider it the right thing to do? Well, first of all, because he knew better than almost anyone what it meant to do the wrong thing. Right? Of all people to be giving us this sound wisdom, as he's inspired by God to write the things he's writing, of all people to give us this sound wisdom concerning what is right, he knew better than anybody what is right because much of his life had been wrong. You'll recall that before Judas's betrayal and Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord said something shockingly prophetic to Peter. Luke chapter 22. And I'm mixing up the order of these verses so as to make my primary point. Luke 22, 31. To say that Peter thought rather highly of himself would be a gross understatement, right? He did think very highly of himself, way too highly of himself. He thought himself to be that example of the 10 feet tall and bulletproof man who, Lord, I'll never, I will never reject you. I'll never do anything that is contrary to what you have taught us. Look at me. I'm the stellar example of what it means to be a, a follower of Christ. I'm, I'm immutable. My armor is impenetrable. Nobody will ever get to me. Verse 31, Jesus said, Simon, Simon. You know, it's much like in the South when your name is used twice. Or when they use your first name and your middle name. You know you're in trouble. Why, why did I hear Kinsley Rebecca? Never mind. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Uh-oh. What do you think that did to Peter's attitude, his demeanor? Immediately deflated him. And how would that happen? Verse 34, again, in spite of Peter's arrogant objections in verse 33, Jesus tells Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me denied three times that you know me. Now, if he said that and nothing else, that would be really tragic, would it not? But I want you to know very carefully what he said to Peter in verse 32. He says, you're going to do this thing. You're going to go through this. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you when once you have turned again, 
Strengthen your brothers. What we see in both of Peter's letters is nothing more, nothing less than Peter being obedient to the Lord's command to strengthen his brothers. And don't you love the assurance that the Lord gives Peter here? Peter, you're going to do this unthinkable thing. You claim and have claimed to be my closest ally, my closest follower. But I'm going to tell you right now, before the rooster even crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. And yet, now understand this. Understand this when you slip and fall, when you feel like you're not worthy of being saved. You can apply these same words to yourself. The Lord says, but when you turn, when I turn you around, when you repent, I'm going to give you the strength, I'm going to give you the wherewithal to strengthen your brothers. And from that point on, you really will be the genuine article. So much so that Peter would go to his own death insisting that he be crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same way as his master. Oh, but pastor, that's just tradition. That's just, well, maybe so. I mean, we don't read that in Scripture. But we can rest fairly firmly on the historical accounts of the day that tell us that that's exactly what happened. Given the fortifying grace that the Lord extended to him following his denials, it was only right in Peter's mind that he do likewise. And isn't it strange that in Peter's restoration, what particular teaching method does Jesus himself use? Repetition. Peter, do you love me? Now, the difference in the words aside, and that's really meaningful too, but the Lord repeats that three times so that Peter understands. There's value in repetition. And it was only right for Peter to continue that with respect to his own ministry. So that answers the question of why Peter was so intent on strengthening and establishing his brethren. But how long exactly would he be doing that? Well, his answer is in verse 13. He says, I'll be doing this as long as I am in this earthly dwelling that is his body or his flesh. Peter's constant reminders concerning how his readers were to conduct themselves as God's children, those reminders would continue until the Lord took him home. And they did continue until the Lord took him home. And this leaves us with the question of how Peter went about carrying out the Lord's command. Okay, we know he did it by way of reminder, but he refers to it using a different word. He says he did this by constantly stirring his readers up by way of reminder. Now, the word translated as stir here, as is true in our English language as well, it can mean a couple of things. 
First, it can mean to stir something like one would stir their coffee. Stir the ingredients for a cake. Stir things in a bowl or in a cup. In that sense, it refers to making sure that all of our ingredients are mixed properly together. And I would say, yeah, that very much has application here. We can stir one another up. You see people lacking in certain areas. We see people taking advantage of certain disciplines and to the, at the expense of others. We see people who are deficient in certain areas. Those things are all there. We've all been blessed with the same blessings, not the same gifts, but the same blessings in Christ. And we're to stir those things up in each other. So yes, that has some application. But that's not the way Peter's using the word here. Peter's use of the word stir here refers to waking someone up from a deep sleep. You'll often hear authors writing about stirring someone awake. Right? You walk up to someone and you agitate them to get them to wake up, to arouse them, to stimulate them out of their sleep. This is how Peter's using the word. He's saying, my intent in repeating myself so often in my teaching of the truth is to wake you up and to keep you awake. Now, why is that necessary? Because Peter knew, again, that we are very prone and very accustomed to tuning out the things that we hear the most. Remember the old uh, Peanuts cartoons that used to come on TV? Charlie Brown had a teacher. And you never hear the teacher speak. Instead, when the teacher's speaking, what do you hear? Womp, 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 womp. That was intentionally done by the producers of that show to indicate that in a child's mind, that's what the teacher sounds like. Because you keep telling us the same things over and over and over and over. And before long, they become meaningless. Because we tune them out. Parents, you can be viewed the same way by your children. How many times have you said to your children, if I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times to do this or not to do this. Right? Why do you have to keep telling them? Because at some point along the way, they just tuned you out. You've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You've become a broken record. You young people, ask your parents what that means. Peter knew that our minds have a tendency to get so accustomed even to the truth that if we're not careful, we might grow mentally dull. We might begin to take it all for granted. And when that happens, more often than not, we forget what we're supposed to remember and we remember what we're supposed to forget. Peter saw it as his duty to shake his readers out of their lethargy, to agitate them, to arouse them out of their slumber. You'll recall what Peter said about this in his first letter. In 1 Peter 1.13, he urges us, saying, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 5.8, we're told again, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Why? 
Here's why. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You want to know another secret? From my vantage point, up here, I see everything. I see everything. Now, what does that mean? Well, most of the time, I'm not ten minutes into my sermon before I see some of you with your eyes rolling back in your head, doing the old nap jerk. Right? You get kind of drowsy, head starts sinking. and In some cases, I don't mean to strike fear into anyone's heart inappropriately here, but in some cases, I've seen you sleep for a number of minutes before your, your head finally perks up and you're like, whoa, whoa, I've been asleep. I hope nobody saw me. I see you. Now, I have to admit, I'm not always the most interesting person to listen to. I'm not, not the most dynamic, most exciting speaker you've ever heard. But let me just say this. The problem is yours, not mine. The problem is yours. It's not mine. In spite of what shortcomings that I might have, in spite of the fact that my style or delivery might not be to your liking, in spite of the fact that God's using imperfect specimens all over this country at this very hour to preach His Word, wherever that Word is being preached, it should stir you up. It should awaken you out of your spiritual lethargy. The Word of God should energize you like nothing else. And if it's not, ask the Lord why. And then ask the Lord to give you that requisite love, adoration, respect for His Word. And realize, you know, when Peter's writing these things, he's writing to a group of people who did not have the fully inscripturated Word of God. Folks, we have 66 books of the Bible. We have 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. They didn't have hardly anything. And yet, they're still being encouraged to love the Word that they had. And to never, ever grow weary of that Word being repeated. Regardless, like Peter, my intent is to keep stirring until the Lord calls me home. But here's the thing. Let me just ask you, has the Lord not been equally gracious to all of us who believe? He has. And in light of His amazing grace, does that not mean that all of us bear a similar responsibility for strengthening one another. You don't have to go to church where the Word's being preached to be encouraged, to be uplifted, to be agitated, to be stirred up to further action. Get that from one another as well. Each and every one of us 
should avail ourselves of every opportunity, not only to be stirred up, but to join in stirring one another up. And although the author uses a different word than Peter uses here, look at Hebrews 10. Same meanings being conveyed. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 23. You know this passage well. The author writes here, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And I told you how you can get to the point where you're wavering. When you deny yourself the Word of God, when you grow lax in your observance of all of these things that Peter has just said we should be observant about, you will begin to waver. The writer here says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful... And let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day approaching. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The day of the Lord's return is closer today than it was yesterday. It will be closer tomorrow than it is today. And should the Lord tarry, it will be closer the next day than it was the previous day. And so the implication is pure and simple, easy to understand. We should be stirring one another up more and more and more as we see the day drawing near. We know the day is drawing near. The question remains, are you stirring one another up? That's the question. Now, how do we do that exactly? We do that by reminding each other and holding each other accountable to the Word of God. You know, there are a lot of people who would classify me and some others as just theological nerds, and all we like to do when we're with friends is sit around the table and talk theology and talk Bible. You know why we do that? We do that because we feed on those reminders. I do it because I'm very well aware that you know things that I don't. I do that because I'm teachable too. And I want to know what's the Lord doing in your life. How can you share with me how you've been encouraged from the Word of God in a way that I might not have yet been encouraged? See how that iron sharpens iron? That whole process works together for our good and certainly for His glory. Now in Peter's case, according to verse 14 of our text, he knew that the laying aside of his earthly dwelling was imminent. And how did he know? Well, he knew because the Lord had revealed it to him. When did he do that? You might ask. Well, look at John 21. <clears throat> John chapter 21, the very end of John's letter, John's gospel. Notice what Jesus said to Peter in verse 18. Again, very prophetically, 
Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. Most scholars are in agreement that when Peter wrote this letter, it was between 65 and 68 A.D. And what happened of significance in 68 A.D.? Well, that just happens to be the year that Nero died. And we know that Peter was put to death during the reign of Nero. It is quite possible that Peter died only days, weeks, months, or at the outset, a couple of years after he wrote this letter. He knew that his death was imminent. And you know, we can think about all the things that we would write to people if our death was imminent, if we knew that we were going to die shortly. And he knew, he had this feeling that his time was up. How old was he? We don't know. We do know that he was probably fairly advanced in age because when he was ministering with Jesus, uh, that was some 35 years before the writing of this letter. And so we do know that if he was 30 when that happened, he would have been 65. We do know that he had a wife. Uh, we do know that uh, he was probably older than some of the apostles. Again, we don't know exactly, but for that time period, he would have been a fairly old person. Which makes it even more convicting that in his final correspondence, he chose to write about things, all of which were simply repetitions of what he had said all along. Truths that he wanted them to understand. Truths that he wanted them to overlearn so as to make things automatic. I know I pick on Paxton the pilot. Wow, that's a bunch of peas. But Paxton the pilot will tell you that when you learn to fly commercial aircraft, you're in a situation where you overlearn. You know that airplane inside out, frontwards, backwards, sideways. You know everything there is to know about that airplane. Why? Because in that case, familiarity is so important because so many lives depend on you to know what to do when the need arises for you to do something. I don't know about you, but that guy who's flying me around in a big hollow metal tube named Biff or Buck or whatever his name is. I want him to know what to do if things go awry. But the same thing's true of us. We need to overlearn the Scriptures because we don't know what providences are coming our way. We don't know when we're going to have to respond in a way that Scripture would have us respond and we had better understand what that response should be. Right? I don't know how many of you have ever undertaken the task of memorizing Scripture. But if you've not done that, I would highly recommend it. You know, there's just something special about repeating a Scripture over and over and over in one's mind. 
Before long, you become really fond of it. Before long, it takes root, and you're like, wait a minute, there, you know, now I've hidden the Word of God in my heart. And why do we hide the Word of God in our heart? So that we might not sin against Him. I remember years and years and years ago, yes, kids, before the earth began to cool, I was being discipled by a very dear man who one, the first thing he had me do was begin with the topical memory system by navigating a little card. I carried those cards around. Uh, Cassie now has my cards that I carried around. Why? Because I memorized all those things. And to this day, I make it a habit to keep memorizing Scripture. And I'm not bragging about that. I'm not patting myself on the back. But I can tell you that there are hundreds of Scriptures up here that I've been able to recall in various scenarios for the glory of God, and they're just the right words. Wouldn't you rather do that than lean on your own understanding? To lean on your own wisdom? Absolutely. But God has never failed me when it comes to being able to instantly recall things I learned years and years and years ago. Because I overlearned those things. And they've become so valuable in my life and in the lives of others. Imparting truth to others in the way that Peter does in a repetitive fashion is also helpful in terms of preparing them for the war that's raging around them. Parents, I would encourage you highly to start your children on Scripture memory. Oh, well, Pastor, I, I, you know, my kids are all unregenerate. My kids are lost. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the more of God's Word you can put up here, should the Lord eventually, we pray that He does, should He make that connection between the head and the heart, they have a wonderful head start. Teach your children the Word of God. Quiz them. Help them to memorize significant portions of God's Word. Prepare them, even if that never comes to fruition. God forbid. But prepare them nonetheless. You'll benefit as a parent from stirring them up in that way. Let me ask you another question that hits fairly close to home. What kind of spiritual legacy will you leave for your children? Should the Lord take you home in the not-so-distant future, what kind of legacy are you going to leave your children? Will they remember you for all the presents that you bought them? Will they remember you for the nice vacations that you took? Will they remember you for how nice you were, how hip you were, how relevant and cool you were? Let me just challenge you now to leave your children with a godly legacy. If you're to be remembered for anything, let it be for the love that you had for the Lord. And let it be for the way that you consistently taught them 
without hesitation or reservation to love him as well. And I know for a fact that many of you fathers are woefully inept when it comes to this. How do I know? Because not only do I see everything, men, sometimes your wives have had enough and they come to me and tell me. It's time, men, to step up. Well, I might alienate my children. I might turn them off. I might make them think I'm a Jesus freak. Are you not? I'm a proud, flag-waving, certified Jesus freak. And I make no apologies for that. Dads especially. If you don't model Christ for your children, they will get their model from someone else. If you don't demonstrate the pure love of Christ to them, they'll find another definition for love. And you see it in the culture in which we live now. That old phrase that's been going around since the LGBTQXYZ, whatever we're on now, movement started. Love is love. Folks, love is not love. Love is what God says it is. Period. And yet your children are going to learn to love. The question is how? And from whom? Enough of these people bemoaning how hard it is to correct all the things my kids are learning. It's just so hard to correct all the things my kids are learning. You know, I'm, I'm not one to blast public schools. I, I came up in the public school. Look what the Lord did for me. I mean, He can do whatever he desires with the materials he's given. But I have to quote Vody Bakken here. Don't be surprised when you send your kids off every morning to be trained by Caesar. Don't be surprised when they come back as Romans. And don't simply sit back and, yep, they've been educated for the day. Fathers, you're the high priest in your home. You need to be directing your children to believe, thus saith the Lord. And when they object and say, well, my teacher says, your teacher is not Jesus Christ the Lord. And guess what? It doesn't cost anything. Here's a curriculum for you. You don't even have to pay for it. Are your children not worth the most precious gift you can give them? They should be. So teach them. And continue teaching them till your dying breath. Husbands, this goes for your wives as well. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 25-27, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Men, are you ministering the word to your wife? You should be. How often? Every day. Multiple times in the day. Why? Because you're commanded to. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And we would do well to obey. Once again, I, you know, people ask me all the time, why is my life going so horribly? Why am I having this problem and that problem? Why, why am I having to go through this? And when I start asking, it's not long before we get to that question, husbands. Are you being the spiritual head of your home? Ah, uh, well. I even had somebody, you know, tell me at one point, I was afraid you'd ask that. That even makes you more responsible. You know what my answer is going to be. Just do it. Save me some time. Time from what? Time from having to repeat myself. And here's another thing too. If you go to somebody for counsel, and that counselor, much like a doctor, the counselor says, do this, this, and this, and you should see improvement. And you don't do it. What do you expect is going to happen? You know, Einstein once famously said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I would negativize that by saying it's also not doing what you know you should be doing over and over and over again and expecting improvements. Right? We should all long to leave a legacy that extends far beyond our own family. What will others say about you when you're gone? Forget the family for a minute. What will your coworkers say when you're gone? They might say, well, I never knew him that well, but he was a beacon for Christ. I know that. Or will they say, well, he really wasn't worth anything. All he did was argue with me. All he did was want to, you know, want to say mean things to me. We've all been there. Much better to leave a legacy of Christ. My prayer for each of us is that we will be remembered as those who love to tell the story. What story? Story of unseen things above of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. Do you like telling that story? You ever grow tired of telling, telling that story? Don't. Don't do that. Let people know where your heart's at. Let them know that you truly love them by giving them the truth over and over 
and old 